Go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 53 through 65. That's Mark 14, 53 through 65. We're continuing our study of Mark's Gospel, and this morning we will be looking at Mark's account of Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. Now, the justice system is fascinating to many. Um, I know a lot of you guys, like, you like to watch documentaries about, like, like crime documentaries and stuff. I know my sister is obsessed with those things. The justice system's interesting, right? We like courtroom dramas, things like that. People find it interesting. Uh, but as fascinating as the justice system can be, it can, at the same time, be horrifying, can it not? Truly terrifying. Um, and, and it can be terrifying when injustice reigns instead of justice as defined by God. We hear stories, <clears throat> we watch movies, we watch documentaries, we read books about miscarriages of justice. We hear of men and women found guilty, imprisoned, and even executed for crimes that they did not commit. And it makes us sick to our stomachs. Um, especially when the evidence seems to clearly indicate that someone was bearing false witness or that the trial was fixed from the beginning against the defendant to ensure a guilty verdict. It can really be an awful thing. The justice system can, can be severely abused. And I mention this because today we are considering the Jewish trial of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it was anything but a just trial. We, we are going to witness, as we read the text, we're going to witness our Lord suffer many, many injustices and violations of Jewish law, like Jewish traditional jurisprudence. Um, we're, we're going to see how Jesus was tried by sinful men and unjustly and blasphemously condemned for blasphemy. And we will see Jesus the true and faithful witness, give a true testimony about himself in the midst of a den of lying witnesses. And from the text this morning, I hope to point out some things to encourage you in the Lord and also exhort you to live godly lives in a wicked world. As, as we see Jesus suffer, we will see his example for us as we suffer at the hands of sinners. As we see him bear witness to himself, we will be reminded that we also must bear witness to him. And as we see him voluntarily submit to condemnation and death, we will come face to face with his love for us. Me and Pastor Steve talked about this. I, 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 could, I could have actually taken three weeks and preached this trial three different times to highlight three different things that we see here. But I'm going to try to do it all at once so you can just see so many good things here. Reminders for us, encouragements for us from, here, uh, from the text of Christ's trial. So may God help us to see the love of Christ here and take it to heart so that we might be transformed more into people who live for the glory of the crucified Christ. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. 
Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word is glorious. In it we see the glory of God. In your word we hear your promises, learn of your character, hear your threatenings, see your works, and behold your great love for your people demonstrated most clearly in the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you might help us this morning to understand, believe, and receive your glorious word with faith. By your Spirit, work in us today and transform us as we sit under the ministry of your word. Grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe. Grant that we would see Christ today, and seeing him, that we would be forever changed. Glorify yourself in us through the preaching of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. In this text, our Lord Jesus is taken to trial. It's a Jewish trial before the highest Jewish court in Israel, called the Sanhedrin. A quick word about them. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 men. Uh, These are scribes, elders, chief priests from both parties, Sadducees and Pharisees. These are the highest ranking men in Israel. And it was headed by the high priest to make a total of 71 members so that whenever they ruled, there would never be a hung jury. They would always have to come to a majority agreement. Though Israel uh, was under Roman occupation, the Romans did permit the Sanhedrin to hear religious law cases and some minor civil cases for Jews. But only the Roman government had the power to exercise capital punishment, and they guarded that authority very, very strictly. So I I say that to say this, this is a religious trial for Jesus. They're trying him on religious grounds. The Sanhedrin will look for a capital case against Christ on religious grounds so that they can then take him to the governor, Pontius Pilate, to have him tried again for execution according to Roman law. I personally think they're just trying to settle in their own hearts that he deserves to die before they go lie about him to Pontius Pilate. So this is a religious trial or an ecclesiastical trial, right? Church trial of sorts. Mark tells us that the crowd that arrested Jesus took him to the high priest's house. 
Right? Peter's in the courtyard of the high priest. This is the priest's personal home. And there, the Sanhedrin assembled to put Jesus on trial. The high priest at that time was a man named Caiaphas. He was the son-in-law of the former high priest, Annas. And he had long been desiring the death of our Lord. Mark also tells us that Peter had followed Jesus at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. But then Mark leaves Peter behind in the narrative. And we'll pick up, Lord willing, next week with what happened to Peter that evening. But our Lord's trial then begins in the high priest's house. And it's anything but fair. It's anything but just. It's a kangaroo court is what it is. It's a mockery of all that is good and right. It's a mockery of the law of God. Mark begins the account of the trial by telling us in verse 55, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Hear that. They were looking for witnesses to testify against Jesus. Is that what a court does? No, that's not what a court does. A court exists to hear accusations and evidence and weigh them against the law using proper legal procedures to come to a verdict. A court does not exist to establish charges. A court exists to hear charges. And yet, again, the text says they were seeking testimony. They're looking for witnesses against Christ. They had already made their decision. The verdict was already in. Jesus is guilty of a capital crime. All that remained for them was to find the right accusation and proof of his guilt. In this trial, our Lord was guilty until proven innocent, and he would never be proven innocent in their eyes. Don't forget what Mark says at the beginning of chapter 14. Mark 14.1 says, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. They were looking for a, a way to kill him. This trial is not about justice. These men, except for one, our brother, Joseph of Arimathea, I think the only believer at this trial, hated Jesus. Except for him, they all hated him and wanted him dead. And now their opportunity to legally convict him had come. And to this end, they found lying witnesses. I'm going to read verses 56 through 59. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, here's the accusation. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now, a quick note here. Again, I just want to highlight the injustice of this trial. Verse 50, 50, 56 says, many bore false witness against him at a trial after midnight. What does that tell you? They had these men ready to go. They had these men on standby. You usually can't find witnesses that are ready to testify at one in the morning. These men were ready to go. Again, this was not a real trial. The Sanhedrin had these men prepped and ready to lie against the Lord. But many were found by the Sanhedrin who were willing to lie about Christ and falsely accuse him of crimes. But as Mark tells us, their testimony did not agree. The Old Testament law says in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. 
You can't convict anyone with just one, one witness according to God. You need multiple witnesses. Now that portion of Deuteronomy then goes on to say, some of you are familiar with this, that text then goes on to say that if a false witness is found to be hostile, that is intentionally lying, that false witness must suffer the exact same punishment that the defendant would have uh, punished or would have suffered if he would have been convicted. That means that these lying witnesses trying to get Christ on a capital charge should have been executed once they were found to be lying. That's a good law, by the way. That's a really good law. But that portion of the law was ignored that night, and the lying witnesses were permitted to go free as far as we know. But again, they lied, and they said that Jesus had threatened to destroy the temple and in three days rebuild another. Now, the parallel passage in Matthew 26 tells us that they did actually find two witnesses to make this general claim. So let me try to harmonize Matthew and Mark's account here. Um, they, they, They find two witnesses to make this general claim. But first, let's address the claim. Jesus never said that. Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. He never threatened to destroy it. The closest thing that he ever said to this is found in John chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Let me read that to you now. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Jesus there in John 2 is making a prophecy that the Jews would destroy his body. Right? He says, destroy this temple. Not I will, but that the Jews would destroy the temple, whatever he's talking about. He says, destroy this temple. He's making a prophecy that the Jews would destroy his body, that they would kill him, but that he would be raised in three days. John 2.21 verifies this by saying, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Um, these, these false witnesses, what they were doing, and we've had this happen to us, I think some of us, they were taking his words and twisting them. They were twisting his words into an earthly personal threat that he would have the temple destroyed personally. Uh, The only other thing that Jesus had said about the temple being destroyed is found in the Olivet Discourse, right? And even there, did Jesus ever say that he was going to destroy the temple? No, he says the Romans were going to destroy the temple and that it was an outpouring of God's judgment against the Jews for rejecting his Messiah, The destruction of the temple would be a divine judgment and a sign to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah and had come into his kingdom. But Jesus' prophecy um, was not a threat that he would personally destroy the temple while he was on earth. More than that, Jesus never promised to rebuild the temple. By the way, all the Facebook posts you see about like red heifers coming into Israel, the temple's never going to get rebuilt. And if it does, it has nothing to do with God. It has no theological implications at all. Jesus never promised that the temple is going to be rebuilt. So again, they're twisting his words if they were referring to what he had said in the Olivet Discourse. But as Mark said, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now real quick, I want to harmonize something. Matthew 26 says they found two witnesses who accused him of saying that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it. Mark says their testimony did not agree Let me harmonize this. I think this can be understood two ways, but the outcome is the same, essentially. First, they agreed in their general accusation that Jesus had threatened to destroy and rebuild the temple, but their testimonies did not agree in exact detail. So their testimonies needed to agree exactly in order to be admissible in court. 
So any disagreement or contradiction would get their testimonies thrown out. So their testimony did not agree completely, though their general accusation was the same. That's one way we can understand this. Or a second way is this, and this is what a lot of the Puritans thought. The Greek here is more literally translated, their testimony was not equal. It was not equal. This could be understood in this context to mean not equal to a capital offense. Verse 55 says, here's the context, they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They were seeking people to accuse him of a capital crime. And it can be argued, according to Jewish law, that a threat against the temple was not a capital crime. That it wasn't a capital crime. So Mark may be saying that they agreed in their charge against Jesus, but that their testimony was not equal to the punishment that the Sanhedrin were seeking to give Christ, the death sentence. So those are two possible ways to to harmonize Matthew and Mark here. But regardless of how you understand the specifics of what Mark is saying in verse 59, the major point remains. The major point remains. The false witnesses tried with all their might to testify against Jesus, to have him condemned to death, but they couldn't make anything stick. They couldn't make it stick. Why? Because he was innocent. Because he was innocent of all wrongdoing. I said this last week, but I say it again. He is the spotless Lamb of God who has no sin. Mark then tells us that through all of this, through all of this lying, all of these false accusations, this, this kangaroo court, our Lord remained silent. He said nothing. Eventually, the high priest questioned Jesus about the accusations made against him. What do you have to say about these things? And Jesus continued to be silent. And, but eventually, the high priest does ask Jesus a direct question about his person. He says, are you the Christ the son of the blessed. And Jesus then breaks his silence and answers him. He says, I am. I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And with this answer, the high priest accused Jesus of blasphemy. The Sanhedrin agreed and they condemned him to death. And then to highlight their hatred for Christ, they took turns spitting on him. And to mock him, they covered his face and began to punch him in the face, saying, prophesy. What they mean is, tell us which one of us hit you. If you're the great prophet, if you're the Christ, tell us who hit you then. Brothers and sisters, this was the first trial of our Lord. I tried to summarize it for you just now. This is the first trial of Christ, and it was a travesty. It was Maybe you didn't read this because, or catch this because it's such a short summary. This was the single greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world. But in this trial are lessons for us to learn, examples for us to imitate, and glorious love for us to behold. So first, let's consider the silence of Christ in the face of injustices committed against him. Now, I don't know how many of you know this because I didn't. Until this past week studying this, I I never knew this stuff. There were so many laws, both from the Old Testament and from Jewish legal tradition, that were broken in this trial. So many. I'm going to tell you eight of them. First, the Sanhedrin was not to come to a verdict at night. 
and it's after midnight at this trial. Second, the Sanhedrin was not to convene during a Sabbath or a festival or on the eve of a Sabbath or festival, but here it is the eve of both the Sabbath and the Passover. Third, the Sanhedrin was not to meet privately. Capital cases were to be held in the temple, and I believe it was called the Hall of Hewn Stone, and they were to be public trials. But this trial was closed and held at the high priest's house. Fourth, in capital cases, arguments and evidence for the innocence of the defendant were to be heard first, and then evidence for his guilt was to be considered. But verse 55 tells us that right off the jump, they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Fifth, the detection of false witnesses was supposed to end a trial. People are lying, the trial's over. But the false witnesses were allowed to continue, and the false witnesses were not charged with any crime, contrary to the word of God in Deuteronomy 19. Sixth, the Sanhedrin could not initiate charges. They could only rule on charges brought against someone. But what do we see the high priest doing? The high priest is directly questioning Jesus in an attempt to force him to incriminate himself. Well, I'll explain more of that later. Seventh, there was supposed to be a day. This one blew my mind a little bit. There was supposed to be a day intervening between conviction and sentencing so that the Sanhedrin could vote again to convict of a capital crime. This was to ensure that there were no wrongful convictions. Are you sure that you think this man's guilty? Sleep on it. But as we'll see later in Mark, they moved to execute Christ in a matter of hours. And then lastly, beating a prisoner, being held in custody was illegal. But in verse 65, we don't just see the guards doing it. We may expect that of them, but the members of the Sanhedrin themselves begin to beat the bound Christ as he awaits his punishment. Injustice. These religious leaders, here's the irony of it, these religious leaders, these Pharisees and Sadducees, who seem to be so strict in their observance of biblical law and rabbinic tradition, all of a sudden just throw all of that out the window. When it came to Jesus, they hated him so much that they violated nearly everything in their tradition in order to condemn him. And they did that because they knew that they would not be able to condemn him otherwise. They knew he was innocent. They knew he was innocent, but they wanted him dead anyway because he was a threat to their personal status in Israel as teachers and because he was a threat to their godless, man-made, self-righteous religious system. He was lied about and no one cared. He was not offered a fair trial and nobody cared. His reputation was maligned before others without cause and nobody cared. He was in the midst of a den of traitors, rebels, and murderers and nobody cared. Brothers and sisters, I've tried to highlight this to you. He is truly human. Just as much as he is truly God, he is truly human. This caused him great pain in his soul. Think of how you would suffer, would you not? Would you not suffer? Do you not suffer when people lie about you? I'm not trying to, to, to become sentimental here. Jesus has feelings with regard to his human nature. 
He's a man like all of us. Think how you would suffer to have people lie about you publicly. How infuriating, with righteous indignation, how infuriating it would be to hear lies about you right in front of your face. Consider how lonely you would feel, how hopeless you would feel to know, I'm not getting out of here. And remember, he's innocent. This would be truly horrible to endure. And let me remind you this. I'm not telling you to to chase your own imagination here, but Mark's account is only a summary. Everything you read with speeches and events and scripture, those are inspired by the Holy Spirit, but summaries. This is a summary of a trial. Who knows what awful things that they said about him at this trial? This trial wasn't 30 seconds long. That's all it takes to read the text. But who knows what horrible things they said about him that Mark did not record. But our Lord remained silent. He remained silent. And there's a few things for us to learn here. But in in one regard, this, I want you to see this. Because we're not very good at this. I'm not. This is an example for us for how we should suffer. Look at how he suffers in this passage. In silence. What does he do? More importantly, what, look at what he doesn't do. He does not lash out when he's spoken badly about. He does not return insult for insult. He doesn't lose his cool. He doesn't seek revenge against his enemies. He doesn't lie about them when they've lied about him. He bears all of it with perfect godliness as he entrusts himself to God. Let me say this. As the son of God, I'm sure he could have communicated divine uh, omniscient knowledge to the human nature of, of Christ. He could have said truth things about them that, w- that would have been devastating to them publicly for other people to have heard. He didn't even do that. He suffers perfectly here. Apparently, Peter overheard this while he was in the courtyard, right? He, he, he can hear this. And I, I think that he overheard this because he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Here's the example. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Revile is whenever someone speaks badly about you. He did not do it back. When they hurt him, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to God. Brothers and sisters, this is our example for when we suffer injustice at the hands of sinners. This is our example when we suffer injustice at the hands of our brothers and sisters. May it never be, but it does happen, does it not? When we are lied on, reviled, have our reputations dragged through the mud, and all manner of injustice done to us, this is how we are to respond. We do not return evil for evil. Why? Because our Lord did not. We do not insult others when we are insulted. We do not seek to get even. We do not mock. We do not threaten. 
Instead, we are to entrust ourselves to God. What does that mean to entrust yourself to God? It's to recognize that he knows the truth of the situation. He knows our innocence. And he will right all wrongs, whether in time or eternity. And so I need not retaliate, but I entrust myself to him. And just a quick, I'm walking away from my notes here. That's if you're innocent and someone's mistreating you. Sometimes people mistreat you, and, and that's their own sin, but you did wrong them. They're violating this text by repaying evil for evil here, uh, but we could say, humanly speaking, you kind of had it coming. If that's the case, you need to repent and make amends with them while also refusing to retaliate and entrusting yourself to God. But no, we, we don't seek to get even. When we suffer for the name of Christ, when we're hated for his sake, and even when we are mistreated for lesser reasons, or even mistreated because we did something wrong, we will not seek revenge. Why? Because Peter says our Lord has left us an example. This isn't just something for us to look at him and say, isn't that so great that he did that for me? But yes, that is so great he did that for me, and now I must go and do likewise. He entrusted himself to God knowing that God would fix it in his time and his way, and we are not greater than Christ, so we must do as he did. Please hear me. Please hear me. Repaying evil with evil is the way of the world. It is worldly wisdom. As James would say, worldly wisdom is demonic. This is not the way of God. I, I need to hear this. <laughs> Repaying people evil for evil is not the way of God. We do not have the right to treat others as they have treated us. We often think that we do, though, don't we? I'm just doing it back, man. We don't have that right. Rather, we are to continue to do good, love our enemies, and do unto others as we would have them do unto us. In other words, we are to imitate our Lord, and there is never an excuse for doing anything other than that. So hear me, when you suffer injustice, you may seek justice, you may defend yourself and your reputation using wisdom, but you are to entrust all vengeance to God. Anything less than that, please hear me. This, this, I think this will affect your application of this. Anything less than that is unbelief that God will do right in the end. Jesus entrusted himself to the judge. He entrusted himself to God. For you to retaliate and take vengeance into your own hand is to say, I don't think God is going to do what's right, and I must do what's right. Are you, are you more just than the Lord? Are you better than he? Not only that, but it's also an implicit denial that our Lord is worthy of our imitation. Surely you don't want to blaspheme him. So remember, our way is the way of love, not revenge. Our way is the way of peace, not continued fighting. Our way is the way of Christ and not the world. So brothers and sisters, do not succumb to worldly wisdom and seek revenge or to hurt those who hurt you, but rather entrust yourself to God and imitate our Lord. So there's an example for us to imitate here in his silence. But not only do we see an example, but we also see his love for us in his silence. I'd never considered this before, but this is truly glorious. He kept silent for our sake as he was falsely accused. In his silence, he refused to defend himself. Isaiah 53 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that, is before, that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I'm quoting that from Isaiah 53 to not say, oh, see, like it says that he would be quiet, and, he's being, and, and here's Jesus being quiet. Like, yes, that's true, but that's too simple. In Isaiah 53, we're talking about the suffering of the servant on behalf of the people of God. So his silence is meant to be factored in to his suffering. So what does his silence have to do with his suffering and his love for his people? In his silence, he is refusing to defend his innocence. Now, why? Some people look at this, and I've had people say this to me, and I think it's an abuse of the text. Someone, someone maligns your reputation, and you defend yourself, and they say, no, you need to be quiet because Jesus was quiet. <laughs> no, because the Apostle Paul also defends his reputation in First and Second Corinthians. So we see that it's not a sin to defend your good reputation. It's not a sin to do that. It wouldn't have even been wrong for Jesus to do it. But Jesus refuses to speak. Why? Because he is the suffering servant. He is submitted to the will of God. He is committed to the will of God. He knows that it is God's will for him to die as the substitute for sinners. And so he knows that he must go to the cross. And part of his journey to the cross is to be condemned by the Sanhedrin. He knows that. He must be rejected by the nation in order to make atonement for sinners. And so he remains silent so that he can be condemned. This is amazing. He remains silent so he can die. He does not make a defense because he does not intend to win the trial. He does not intend to go free. Rather, his intention is to win salvation for others by the blood of his cross, by satisfying God's wrath against sinners as he hung from a tree. He does not intend to win the trial. He intends to win salvation, and so he remains silent. So we've considered his silence, but now let's consider his speaking. Jesus only broke his silence to answer a direct question about his person from the high priest. Apparently, Caiaphas had had enough of this trial. Things weren't going exactly how he had planned. And so he took matter into his own hands and he asks Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Christ? He's saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the king of God's kingdom? Are you the promised descendant of David who will reign forever? Are you the savior of Israel, the promised redeemer of the people of God? Are you God's chosen one? Caiaphas knew that Jesus had hinted at this, and he knew that many were going around claiming that Jesus was the Christ. So here he's saying, are you the one that the prophets spoke of? Are you the one that God promised would rescue his people and lead them to glory? And he says, are you the son of the blessed? That's a Jewish way of saying the son of God. Are you the son of God? Caiaphas knew that Jesus had at least alluded to this. And he understood that Jesus, please hear me, there's a way that the Old Testament sometimes talks about the king of Israel being the son of God in a symbolic relationship. But Caiaphas knew that Jesus meant something more when he said it. And, and in fact, the Jews in general knew that Jesus meant something more. Read John 8 and John 10 when they wanted to kill him for calling God his father. They knew that he was saying something about being co-equal with the father. That it's more than just a symbolic relationship, but there's, there's something that he has some relationship that he has with God that nobody else can have. 
So he's saying here to Jesus, Caiaphas is saying, are you the son of God? Are you equal to him? Are you uniquely his son? Do you have the authority of almighty God? Brothers and sisters, these were not honest questions. Caiaphas was laying a trap for Jesus. Let me me spell it out. If Jesus remains silent, it'll be the same as if he denies that he is the Christ and son of God. If he says nothing, it'll be an implicit denial. But if he answers yes, Caiaphas is going to accuse him of blasphemy. In Caiaphas' mind, Jesus can't be the Christ. Consider it. Here he stands, a bound, tried, beaten, discipleless, rejected, poor commoner. He must be lying against God and therefore blaspheming God by claiming that God had made him king. And Jesus cannot be the son of God because he is a mere man, according to Caiaphas. More than that, to Caiaphas, Jesus was a heretic of the highest order. So for him to claim to be equal to God is certainly blasphemy. And let's give the devil his due. If Jesus was lying, he would be the greatest blasphemer that ever walked the earth. But we know that he is the Christ and he is the son of God. We know something Caiaphas did not know. So here Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin facing a great dilemma. If he tells the truth about himself, they're going to kill him. And if he remains silent, he's a liar. And it is in light of this knowledge that what happens next is so amazing and so full of love and grace from our Lord. He breaks his silence and says, I am. I am. When he finally speaks, he does so in order to seal his fate by declaring his full identity. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior who has come into the world to save the people of God but not just Israel, because as God told his Messiah in the book of Isaiah, that's too light of a thing. I'm going to set you up as an ensign for the nations, that they might all flock to you. He is the one the prophets foretold. He is the one who will die to save the nation. He is the king of the kingdom, and he is the son of God. He is God come in the flesh. He is the eternally begotten son of God to whom all men owe their worship and full allegiance. He is He is who he said he is. Oh, please hear me. I I think everyone here is a professing Christian. Continue to trust in him. He is who he says he is. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God to whom you owe your worship and your allegiance. He is your only hope. He is the Christ and the Son of the blessed. It's a little bit ironic here that his arch nemesis is the first human in Mark's gospel who confesses it. Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? I am. Good answer. Good question, Caiaphas. He is. And hear this again in Marvel. This this leapt off the page to me this week as I studied. He knew what would happen when he answered the question. He knew that they would have him. He knew that they would use his answer to condemn him to death for blasphemy, but he answered anyway. Brothers and sisters, see the love of the Lord Jesus for his people. See his great love for sinners. He broke his silence in order to condemn himself to death. He broke his silence to condemn himself, and he did it so that he could offer himself as a sacrifice for sin for us. Knowing that it would mean his death on a cross, he answers anyway. 
As the hymn says, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. He loves us. He condemned himself by answering the question because he loves us. But now let's consider his declaration of future glory. Though our Lord was on trial that day, it would not be that way forever. Let's look at his full response to the high priest's question about his identity. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I love that answer. That's a good answer. I mean, he's Jesus. It's the best answer anyone could have given. At his trial, while giving the answer that would condemn him to death, Jesus also affirms that death won't be the end. And he does so, I don't know if you caught this, Jesus is combining two pieces of the Old Testament in his answer. Psalm 110 verse 1 and Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Let me read those to you now and you'll see how he's combining them. Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. Jesus affirmed that he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. But then goes further. He says, and I am the Son of Man. I'm the one Daniel spoke of. I will be seated at the right hand of power. That's another Jewish way of saying the right hand of God. I'm the one that David was talking about in Psalm 110. I'm the one that's going to sit at the right hand of God and watch him put all of my enemies under my feet. I am the one who's going to ascend to heaven and approach the Ancient of Days and receive a kingdom and glory and an eternal dominion over everything that everyone might bow at my feet and worship me. And he says, and you will see it. And it's plural there, by the way. Jesus looks at the Sanhedrin and says, you all will see. You will see me coming with the clouds of heaven. And by the way, that's not a reference to his second coming. It's a reference to his enthronement as the son of man. Jesus says, you will all see. Amen. They would see it when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. Because Jesus says that that was, that was one sign that he had come with clouds, that he had come into his kingdom. But even more than this, they will all see him in the glory of his kingdom on the last day when he judges them. They would see. Both in history, in just 40 years, they would see. And then in eternity, they will see. They will kill him, but he will rise from the dead and ascend to heaven as king of all kings and lord of all lords. Brothers and sisters, Jesus will have the final word. That's what he's saying here. Though he now stands before them as the suffering servant, he will be crowned king. Though he is in his humiliation, they will see him in his exaltation. 
Though he is suffering now, they will see his glory before long. I love this. I'm stealing this from Ligon Duncan. Jesus is saying here, you may be judging me now, but one day I will judge you. Amen. Amen. Though he was made low for a little while, he would be raised to glory forevermore. Brothers and sisters, do you see the contrast in all of this? He is, as Revelation 1.5 says, the faithful and true witness who is in a den of false witnesses. They lie about him and he speaks the truth about himself and gives a warning to sinners concerning their judgment as they judge him. A note here in light of this. First, glory in Christ. He's the exalted king. But also see this for yourself. We need to make this same confession before men. I think that's why Mark put this in here. We need to make this confession. We need to say what he said. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And he will judge the world. Yes, he is the Christ. He is the Savior of all who will believe on him, who made atonement for sinners by his blood. And he will likewise judge all men. So you must seek refuge in him. We must preach what he preached. We must, as Paul tells Timothy, you ever wondered why Paul says, to Timothy, and I'm paraphrasing, you need to make the same confession that Jesus made before Pilate. What is that? Jesus affirmed that he is the king of the Jews to Pilate. You need to make the same confession before men that Jesus made before men. And brothers and sisters, like Christ, we must be willing to suffer for what we confess. Just as he confessed and he knew it was going to cost him everything, so likewise we need to be prepared to confess this before men, though it may cost us dearly. Why? Because we love our fellow man as Christ loved us. But lastly, let's consider now the great ironies of this trial. And this will be kind of where we end. Because I want to highlight the love of Christ. When we think about who Jesus is and who these men were, we can't help but be shocked at how upside down that this whole trial was. And when we consider that, we will see the humility and love of our Lord shining even more brightly in this wicked event. Think about this first. I got four things to show you the upside down nature of this trial. Think about this. Caiaphas, he was the high priest. He was the current high priest of the Old Covenant. He was in every way inferior to Jesus, the great high priest of the New Covenant. And yet, here we read the inferior is assuming authority and judgment over his superior. The one whose office was always pointing forward to Jesus and his work of redemption is now judging his greater fulfillment. The one who had to make atonement for himself before offering sacrifices for others is accusing of sin the sinless high priest who only offers a sacrifice for sinners and never for himself. The temporary priest of a temporary covenant that was passing away is condemning the one who is the eternal king priest after the order of Melchizedek. The priest who offered sacrifices that could never take away sins, sits in self-righteous judgment over the priest who offers himself once for all time to save sinners. And Jesus allows it. And think about this. 
the religious leaders who claimed to know the scriptures better than everyone and therefore should have been the first to recognize the true prophet are the ones who spit upon, mock, and beat the great prophet of God's people. The true prophet is mocked and told to prophesy by the very ones who were supposed to be looking for and waiting for the prophet that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18. The ones to whom God said, I will require it of whoever does not listen to my prophet are the ones who are spitting in the face of the prophet and condemning him to death. The ones who blindfolded Jesus are the blind ones. The ones who should have known the prophecies and saw the prophet first are the ones who are unknowingly fulfilling prophecy about Christ. As Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And Jesus allowed it. And consider this, the king, the son of man, who has an eternal kingdom, is condemned by those who should have been the first to submit to him as his subjects, the Jews. The king, who is their kinsman according to the flesh, came to his own, and his own received him not. Those who should have gladly recognized and crowned him king are the ones who are voting to have him crucified. And he allowed it. And lastly, men, sinful men, sinners who have no right to stand before God, accuse God incarnate of blasphemy. Man, the sinner, puts the sinless son of God on trial. And sinful men accuse a holy God of sin. And in accusing the son of God of blasphemy, they commit the greatest blasphemy of their lives. See in this trial the wickedness and upside down nature of this whole affair see here the blackness of the hearts of men see the injustice of it all and seeing the wickedness of men i want you to see the grace and goodness of our lord jesus shining bright as the sun because he endured this for us as the hymn writer said as we're going to sing here in a minute how low was our redeemer brought to the dust. He was ground into the dirt. So low was his humiliation that we scarcely have words for it. First, in that he would become man in general. And then most extremely in his trial and in his death. Oh sinner, see his love for you. How, how much must he love you to endure so much shame and misery and injustice for your sake? Please hear me. Please, please hear me. We do not suffer for things that we do not love. We do not sacrifice for things that we do not love. And in his trial, we get a glimpse of his suffering and humiliation. And we must therefore conclude that Jesus loves those for whom he suffered. How low he was brought reveals how deep his love is for us. Oh, consider these things with me, brothers and sisters. From the heights of heaven to the dust of the earth, he loves us. From the angel-surrounded throne to the hellish home of the high priest, he loves us. From the realm of eternal glory to the shame of a cross, he loves us. From the brightness of heaven to the darkness of the grave, he loves us. All praise to him. All praise to him. See here his love for you. 
And as I come near to a close now, Christian, remember the love of Christ shown for you at this trial. He chose death. He remained silent and gave no defense. And when he spoke, he spoke to condemn himself. He endured all manner of injustice and was brought lower than low for your sake. He loves you. You need to be convinced of that. He loves you. I will beat this drum. I don't care if you think I'm being repetitive in every week's sermon as we go through the passion narrative of Christ. I'll beat the drum every week. He loves you. That is the heartbeat of his suffering. The son of man, the judge, the one who is seated at the right hand of God who will judge the nations, loves you and died for your sins in order to make you his own. He loves you. Brothers and sisters, we must remember his love for us in everything. And you're saying, man, you're really focusing on this. You gave us two other application points about suffering well and preaching the gospel to people. Yes, I know. I'm focusing now on the love of Christ because knowing that he loves you is the key to everything. Knowing and believing that he loves us is the key to everything. If we get that, we will suffer like him. Why? Because we want to glorify the one who loved us. Why? Because we love him back. If we get that he loves us, then we will speak openly and declare to the world who he is. Why? Because we love him. If we know that he loves us, then we will be willing to suffer anything for his sake. Why? Because I know he loved me and suffered for me first. Brothers and sisters, focus on his love for you you say, well, that sounds really cookie-cutter in Sunday schools. That's Christianity. Focus on his love for you, and everything else that God commands of us will flow from there. And hear me, I'm not, I'm not heading the clouds on this. Our obedience will take effort. It will. Anyone who says it doesn't is lying. Or God's just being incredibly gracious to them and just letting everything go well. Right? I'll, I'll give them that. Our obedience... Though, notwithstanding, if God does a, a, a just great kindness to you, our obedience will most often take great effort and great willpower. But our effort and our will will only be as strong as our love for Christ. And our love for Christ will only ever be as strong as our conviction that he loves me more. May God grant each one of us to behold the love of Christ in his suffering for our sake. And seeing, may God change us and cause us to glorify him in our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, show us the love of Christ. I don't know what else to pray. Convince us in our hearts, God, we know it in our heads, but convince us in our hearts that he loves us. And God, forgive me if I'm sounding like I'm pitting you against the sun. He loves us because you love us, because there's only one will in God. God, convince us that you love us, that we might see it most clearly displayed in Jesus Christ. And seeing that, God, help us to live according to your commands, because we love you back.
Seal that to our hearts. I pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.